today's topic is gratitude, and it's an extension of our topic last Sunday of abundance. Um, and so gratitude this week and then generosity next week, they're all extensions of our topic last week of abundance. And again, abundance, this idea that we have enough um, to be fine. Whether, it's, whether you're talking about food, uh, relationships, things that actually satisfy, that's a big part of this, is we, did, we, sh we don't desire, we desire what doesn't satisfy. That's what consumerism is. And abundance is about helping us desire what does satisfy. And what really does satisfy, most of us have an abundance of already. We just forget about it. It's mm -hmm. another key word there, forgetfulness. So, uh, today's topic is gratitude and extension of that. You have to have gratitude before you can have generosity. Because gratitude is the intentionality that keeps you grounded in the abundance that you have. Otherwise, you will forget. So again, remember that word forget. Um, and so as I go through this, I do want to start with a little disclaimer here. And, and you've probably noticed this about me subconsciously. I've never really said it explicitly. But I, as a pastor, do not like when somebody says, or a theology or a doctrine or a dogma says, the nature of God is such and such because that's what the Bible says it is. I struggle with that because the Bible was written by human beings who were writing from experience, not from some universal truth. They were writing of their experience of God, and they put that down for other people to, uh, to learn from. However, we're so far removed from that that we don't know their experiences. And so a lot of, a lot of the damage that the church does today is to say, well, the nature of God or the nature of theology is such and such because the Bible says so. And if you don't question what the Bible says with other areas, if you don't have something that helps you be critical of what the Bible says with other areas, then that leaves you open, susceptible to being taken by people who will use the Bible to do whatever they want, right? And so the first part of gratitude is to understand the givingness of the divine. The thing to be grateful of is what God gives. However, I can't just go and tell someone, well, God is a giving God. And they, you know, if they said, well, why? And they can say, well, here's, here's the scripture behind it. Say, so what? If that's not been somebody's experience, if someone hasn't experienced the givingness of God, then everything I'm about to say right now is going to be completely irrelevant. And I don't think it's okay to tell someone God is a giving God because the Bible says so. Now, I will say the Bible says this, but then here, let's also talk about what we encounter in nature and what we experience ourselves. Because I actually do believe God is a giving God. I and, and I want to say you can call God whatever you want. It can be God. It can be the divine. It can be the universe. It can be nature. All of those things right there, they all are the same for me, but I would say those things, God, is giving. That is part of God's nature, is to be giving. And if you really need to understand that, I would go back to what we said last week about just nature, the fabric of nature itself has within its genetic code the ability to proliferate abundantly. Whether we're human beings or whether it's a tomato, a tomato has the ability to proliferate its species just off of one fruit, abundantly, all right? So nature is giving. I, I don't even recognize you with that shaved face. <laughs> 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 hey, Marcelino. Good to see you, Marcelino. Good to see you, 
So, um, the givingness of the divine, one, you can understand that through, through scripture. And again, what I would say, scripture is just the experience of people. It is not somebody, uh, the idea of objective truth, that there is objective truth out there, that does not come into play within humanity until the enlightenment. Okay? So, everything in the Bible, which is pre-enlightened writing, is entirely from people's experiences. And they're putting that down on papyrus or whatever, whatever medium it comes in. So, um, from Jeremiah 23, do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord, right? Jeremiah, the prophet, is writing in a time of um, exile. And so, even in a time of exile, the author here feels that God still gives abundantly. Yes? I just want to reinforce your, your disclaimer there. Thank God. Stop <laughs> <laughs> calling you out. I, yeah, I get worried when Becky raises <laughs> In my growing up, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That was the song everybody knew. And somewhere along in my husband's seminary career, somebody said, no, we need to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, and the Bible tells me so. And I thought, boy, is that the fixer. That's what you just said, right? Yeah. Okay, that's great. And, and And for me as a pastor, it's important that, I guess, my flock, people that are here, if you're gonna learn something from me, one thing I would always want people to learn is be critical of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Being critical of something is not a bad thing. It's actually, it's a very good thing. Mm-hmm. Be critical of everything. Mm-hmm. But be critical of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Question it. Mm-hmm. I think also that there's this idea that the world is corrupt, that nature is corrupt, that the, we have dominion over the world because God has given us a gift and we're supposed to be, you know, we're born in sin, so is the world. Uh-huh. It seems like, mm-hmm. and there's this way in which we not only are we separate from the world, but if we are believers and Christians, then we. It seems to me that many Christians view the world as fundamentally corrupt. Yeah, yeah, and and that there finds its origins within medieval theology, particularly after the 10th century. So you're talking about a thousand years of that theology not existing, because mm-hmm. yeah. uh, in antiquity people did not think. Right, it was giving, it was imminent. Yeah, Yeah. and so absolutely. And you can trace that back to a time where human beings came up. So, you know, in the time of Jeremiah, believed that God gave abundantly. Um, The Exodus, which becomes the hallmark of the Israelites' identity from that point forward. And so much of what we see in the prophets is, hey, I brought you out of the land of slavery, right? God is, again, it's the giving nature of God. I have done this for you. I have brought you into the land of milk and honey. I have done this for you. Um, and so scripture, uh, especially the Hebrew Bible, is really centered in this idea that God is a giving God and that, that the response to that is gratitude, which I will say more about that later. Then there's the dynamic of the Trinity, right? And so I think a lot of us, if any of us grew up with the Trinity, it's, it's simply that God exists in three different functions, which is also from the Enlightenment. And there's something, there's something deeper about the Trinity that people believed in those first few centuries, which they didn't even call it the Trinity. The Trinity doesn't become a thing for a few hundred years until after Jesus' death. But there was this belief that God existed at, in flesh, incarnate as Jesus. God was imminent in nature, and God existed in spirit. And, and really the, the primary uh, function, I guess, I hate that word, is 
is that God is dynamic more than anything else. That God is dynamic, um, and really the, the, the foundation of that is if God is, if God is God, if God can create, and then God chooses not to create, meaning God does not create the universe, does not create the planet Earth, then God is not loving. That is kind of a philosophical idea. God created only because God is loving. God created only because at some point relation had to exist. Imagine the way to think about that. Imagine you are the only being that exists in the entire universe. How would that feel to you? For me, it would feel very lonely, right? And so we exist to be in relationship with that around us. And that is the very nature of God. That is the whole point of creation. That is the whole point of the Trinity, is it is a givingness. And that's the, the Trinity is not about how God the Father created life, how Jesus redeemed that life, and how the Spirit now sustains that life. It's more about how God is three is, is a relationship. There is a dynamic there. And so a lot of that comes from John, the Gospel of John, um, chapters 14 through 17. And Jesus, this is all like through prayers and stuff that Jesus is talking about. One, you know, Jesus says, the Father gives to the Son, the Son gives to the Father, but the Son also asks the Father to give the Holy Spirit to humanity. And so it is this idea that God, God is really God's ultimate self in relationship. And so that comes from this givingness. God is giving to the Son, the Son gives to humanity, the Son also gives back to God, etc. You don't really need to understand in some kind of a um, comprehensive way who or what the Trinity is, really all you need to understand there is that the Trinity is dynamic and giving and it is relationship. And that's it. And, and, and our response to that philosophy or that theology is not to understand, it's to participate in it. That's it. So we participate in that by experiencing that giving from God, but also by giving to others. It's a dynamic thing. Does that all make sense? That's a bit wordy. Um, so, so that's understood through scripture. And again, as I said, I can tell you what scripture says. Who gives a shit, right? Because if you don't have an experience to match up with that, then that's going to be completely irrelevant. And if anyone ever tells you this is this way because scripture says it, call that person out. They should be called out. Because that's someone who's participating in a damaging way of utilizing theology. Scripture tells us of experience from other people and then it's up to us to go and see if that experience matches as well. And I would say most of the time it will. Um, God is giving. That's what scripture says. How can we experience that? One, through nature. Nature is a giving thing. The fabric of nature is to be giving. We have mutated that with our own systems. Uh, when colonizers came over to America for the very first time, the indigenous people in this country had a relationship with the abundance of nature. It wasn't cultivated. They didn't have agriculture. There was a relationship, a knowledge, and knowing that nature is, in and of itself, a giving property. Not only that, indigenous populations did not hoard. They did not try to wall off. They took what nature provided, knowing that nature will continue to provide, knowing that nature's going to provide for others, too, so we don't need to take 
from others and make sure that we are okay. That is very much the relationship with indigenous populations in this country. And it wasn't until Europeans came over here and started walling stuff off and taking land away and brought in this system of accumulation and hoarding, etc. So nature, we, we can experience the abundance of nature if we understand that relationship. And I would submit most of us do not. I don't. I have absolutely, if you put me in the middle of the woods, I would die in three days, without a doubt. And I think you, I think you can last like 10 days without food. And I would still die in three days. Yeah, wow. So there is a book by a man named Marco, um, sorry, Malcolm Marco, that talks about the tribes in the Bay Area. And when the Spanish arrived, and 15th century, they thought this is like a garden. And it turned out that those 40 or 50 little tribes had actually quite consciously and over time um, essentially created um, oak trees that were, you know, gave lots of nuts by burning the grass so that they would grow. They actually created, um, they moved from place to place. They were very well organized around it. And so it wasn't, they weren't as nomadic in some ways as you're saying. They had a very organized society. And one of the reasons that they existed for thousands of years without warfare is they had a rigid policy of exogamy. You had to marry outside your tribe and one of those other tribes. Okay. So that's a very interesting story. There's a midden pile in Emeryville that's 40 feet deep, and there's no evidence of uh, warfare anywhere in that midden pile. That's neat. Um, so understood through nature and then finally understood through experience, which I've already said, but I think really the question there as far as understood through experience is do you experience um, an abundance of goodness? And this was kind of a topic last week. I think our minds have been so trained through consumerism that we are more geared to see what we don't have than what we do have. And if we really sat down and thought about that question, do I have an abundance of what genuinely satisfies? I think all of us would say yes. We've just been trained to crave that which does not satisfy. We've been trained to look not at what we have, but what we think we don't have and that we want more. Um, so that's the experience part. That's kind of the point of this topic is to really help us go into our minds, our own experience, and realize, actually, I do have an abundance. And the best way to be cognizant of that abundance is through gratitude, which I'm going to say more of. So, um, the story of God's people um, as a story of gratitude and forgetfulness. Now, we may look at, you know, you see people who talk about, like, the Old Testament God versus the New Testament God. Has anyone ever encountered that? You know, the New Testament God is just a God who is loving, and the Old Testament God is a God who is loving, right? And that's a terrible way to look at it, number one, but it's also a ubiquitous way to look at it. That's how I grew up looking at it. You know, God was just pissed off in the Old Testament. And God was pissed off because people were not following the rules. And then in the New Testament, God is just loving all the time, right? Um, the story of God in the Hebrew Bible, though, is really a story of justice, and it's a story of living into relationship. And the reason God ends up being judgmental at times is because human beings start neglecting that relationship. And what you end up seeing is it's a cycle of gratitude and then and that cycle really matches up with the human cycle, I think. And that's why I'm sharing this. And so, one, I, I hope it kind of helps you encounter 
of the stories within the, in the Hebrew Bible better, because it's not just a pissed off God. It's a God who desperately wants to live in a relationship with God's people, and there's moments where God's people are like, yes, and things are good, and then there's moments where God's people are like, eh, I don't, I don't really remember that, and, and kind of go off on their own. And, and that cycle is just um, is, is, uh, perpetuated throughout all of the Hebrew Bible, all of the Old Testament. Um, and so gratitude ends up being built into the very worship practices of the Israelites. Part of, part of the reason they show up as a congregation in the temple or wherever is to express gratitude. Gratitude for what God has done. And the story of the Hebrew Bible really is what God has done. You hear phrases like, as I have blessed your ancestors, um, uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, which is pre-Exodus. Or, as I have brought you out of the land of slavery, which is post-Exodus. Or, then we get into the prophets, as I have brought you out of exile. Right? All of that is about what God has done. And gratitude, thanking God for that, is part of the process in people living in relationship with God. Knowing that God, God, is, God is here to care for us as we live into that relationship. But then there's this cycle of forgetfulness. And part of that forgetfulness comes in two folds. And this is, this is a very justice-centered piece, right? It's the, the, the two chief sins that we see that the prophets call people out for are one, idolatry, which is simply putting your heart into something else that is not God. Sometimes that's worship of other gods. Um, so it's idolatry, and then it is hoarding or neglecting uh, the least of these. So it is, it is those two chief sins that God ends up getting wrathful uh, in the Hebrew Bible. You are, you are worshiping idols, or you are not caring for each other. Mm -hmm. And both of those uh, can relate, one, to forgetfulness and abandon gratitude. So <coughs> forgetting what God has done would lead to idolatry. If you don't remember what God has done for you, then it's okay to go and worship other gods. You, you wouldn't think about um, needing to be in a relationship with God anymore because you've forgotten what God has done for you. Um, and then also this belief that if God gives abundantly, then we don't need to hoard. That's the story of the man in the desert. If God is going to give us abundantly, there's no reason for us to accumulate and hoard at the expense of other people. And both of those have to do with forgetfulness. Forgetting, forgetting what God's done forgetting that God cares for you. That forgetfulness then leads to idolatry and <coughs> neglect of the vulnerable among us. Lisa? Can you, can you um, explain what was the purpose of the function of sacrifice? Yeah, sacrifice is about sharing a meal. On the, like on the altar, where they were killing these poor animals. What yeah, was the function? it's about sharing a meal. Um, it's, it's, uh, it, it's not so much about an atoning sin as much as um, killing an animal and cooking it and having that smoke or that aroma goes up to the gods or God because they can't physically come down and eat that meal with you. That's the way you share a meal with them. And the, and the idea there is that a meal is the most vulnerable place that people can come and be with each other at a table. That's where you come and reconcile. That's where you come and make amends because you're in this vulnerable space of having to look each other in the eyes, of having to be present with another, and, and you can't do that with God, 
accept through that process of sacrifice. And so it's, it's really about having a meal with God um, in the sense of saying, you know, we have ruptured a relationship. This meal is us coming together and, and repairing that relationship. Isn't that something that, that Jesus did away with? Like when, when he turned over the tables in the, in the temple and no, they, no, selling they things. continue to sacrifice <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, that wasn't about sacrifice. That was about the temple tax. That was about the Jewish uh, temple leaders in collusion with Rome. And they were collecting the annual temple tax. And that temple tax was to go directly to Rome. The Jewish temple leaders were getting rich off of that. They were participating in the oppression of the Jewish people by that. Um, you know, and that's why Jesus says, you know, you've made this place a den of robbers. It's, it's really not about the sacrificial that, system. That practice has uh, went away at some point. Well, the temple was destroyed. Yeah, but I mean, we have throughout history the, the Greco-Roman people participated in sacrifices, uh, not human, but animal sacrifices. I mean, cultures have been participating in animal sacrifice for a long time. Oh, in and that case, they still do it. My Muslim students put their hand on the goat and daddy slashed it. Okay. That's, that's current okay. in this country. Yeah, within, <clears throat> my, my guess would be that as Christianity kind of takes over, Christianity didn't have that sacrificial system within it, and so it just simply became irrelevant. That would be my guess. Um, you don't think it's that people said no Jesus did the ultimate sacrifice so we don't need the minor sacrifice? I think that's I think all of that has to do with it and I think but you're also talking about not just Jewish people letting go of their sacrificial system but Greco-Roman people letting go of their sacrificial mm -hmm. system and I don't think that's so much about them saying well Jesus made the sacrifice so we don't have to I think that's more about Christianity just growing so much that the other sides just get kind of pushed out and done interesting like Interesting. Did Jews still sacrifice? Huh? Did the Jews still do sacrifices? Uh, if they do, I would guess it would be, uh, you know, very Orthodox or Hasidic Jews, but yeah. I, do, I don't know. Yeah. You have any ideas? I think, I think, like, very Orthodox, there's some type of. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Steve? Um, I was wondering if one of the factors wasn't the institution or the growth of property and inheritance as people settled down had plots of land, had more stuff, had stuff they, they felt like they owned, if that wasn't. No, because what, historically you see the, you know, when, when Rome falls, the world moves into a feudal society. And so the, the monarchs tend to own the land. I, I was meaning in the Old Testament, when Israel was just beginning to deal with issues of uh, some people having a lot, some people having no, no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that does come into play when um, when Rome shows up. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so lack of gratitude in Scripture leads to injustice. And, and you know, the topic of gratitude today, you might think, oh, we're going to talk about gratitude. It's going to be a, a hippy-dippy, fluffy bunny conversation today, right? Um, we want our kids to say thank you all the time. I'm, I, I'm constantly reminding my kids, what do you say? What do you say? What do you say? <laughs> right? Yeah. Gratitude is actually very practical. Um, and, and it's for that sentence right there. A lack of gratitude leads to injustice. So this is not about your individual sense of being gracious or having gratitude. This is more about how a lack of gratitude leads to societal injustice. And the reason it does is if, if we do not have that intentionality of gratitude, if we look at 
that cycle of forgetfulness in the Hebrew Bible, if you forget where your resources come from, then you will hoard. And if you're hoarding, you will neglect those that you have to take care of because you're more focused on hoarding and taking care of yourself. And so the, the, the thing that stops that, again, is gratitude. Gratitude for what? Gratitude for where your resources come from. Gratitude for the givingness of the divine, or nature, or the universe, or whatever you want to call it. So I'm going to take that cycle and then jump into the modern era, because it's the same exact cycle today. And this is, the title I have here is, comes from a 2004 BBC documentary, um, which is insane, because we've all as a society forgotten this documentary. <laughs> I, I forgot about it. <coughs> Excuse me. The documentary was called The Century of Self. Consumerism encourages forgetfulness. Um, and, and this is coming out of a time when I know that we know that the war effort in World War II and how um, people going into the workforce during World War II were manufacturing to pump out enough industry, bullets, machinery, etc is a part of what pulled us out of the Great Depression. We think of that a lot. But we miss that within World War One, that same level of industry is also what pushed us into the Roaring Twenties. Now, we come into the Twenties with this robust economic system. And people are producing for the war effort. But what happens is World War One ends, right? And most of the developed world not including Germany, right? They get completely shafted. Um, they have more than they could possibly desire. The, the, the effort of production has given everybody everything they need. However, there were people at the top of industry that said, well, now what do we do? We've already produced. How do we keep this going? And a very concerted effort comes into play to move people away from a culture of what you need to a culture of what you desire. And so a Lehman Brothers executive guy by the name of Paul Mazur had a very famous quote from 1927. He said, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things even before the old have been entirely consumed. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. Getting a new iPhone. Yeah. Towards what purpose? Towards what purpose? Towards the towards the uh, the bottom line, for yeah. a very small select group of people. Right. Yeah. Wow. And so that that idea comes out. We need to do this. Okay. How do we do it? And what they do is they contract with a guy named Edward Bernays, who is the nephew of Sigmund Freud. Understands psychology very well. Understands especially how the individual ego works. And this guy, Edward Bernays, worked with Woodrow Wilson during World War I using psychology to try to convince the American people to allow Congress to sign a declaration of war and enter into World War I. And so he uses this psychology to, to convince the American public to do this, and it works phenomenally well. So well that after World War I, Edward Bernays thinks to himself, wow, I could actually use this to make myself some money too. And so what does he do? He decides to move to New York, Manhattan, opens up his own office and says to himself, well, I can't use the word propaganda because that's got a negative connotation, so what I'm going to call it is public relations. 
And so PR is invented by Edward Bernays in the 1920s. And he ends up contracting with businesses who can no longer justify demand anymore because people have what they need. And so they need to create demand with people. Mm -hmm. So he has three big campaigns, two of them within, within the industry. One of them is with the car companies, where he helps the car companies advertise cars, selling cars to men as forms of male sexuality. Has anybody ever owned or wanted to own a muscle car? <laughs> right? You ever see someone drive it on the freeway in some big thing and I want to stick out my hand and just show my little pinky and just say, I know. I know what you're packing. I know what that car means. Present company excluded. Um, <laughs> so he helps car companies sell cars as symbols of then, men in business were smoking cigarettes like crazy. Women, it was not considered appropriate for women to smoke cigarettes. This guy realized, and the tobacco companies, we're missing half the population. So what does Edward Bernays do? He organizes a bunch of very wealthy female debutantes to go and march in the New, uh, uh, the New York annual Easter parade. And so these wealthy debutantes were marching down the street smoking cigarettes. And boom, the taboo was gone, and an entire demographic opened up that the tobacco companies could now sell cigarettes to. And then finally, he contracted again with the United States government uh, to help ex uh, exploit the fear of the Soviet expansion in order to uh, sell this U.S. backed coup in Guatemala. Hmm. Um, if you start looking at what the United States did in the 1950s in Latin America, oh it's frightening and it's gross, and it's a part of our history that most people. Uh, but a lot of that had to be sold to the American people as well uh, because it just wasn't justifiable. And so, again, Bernays was part of that, that campaign. So Bernays was so successful that what he did is that he ends up giving birth to an industry of PR and advertising. He ends up growing this to other people who realize we can use psychology with advertising and create this desired culture. And it works so incredibly well just grows more efficient with time and day. When you look at social media companies, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram especially, um, some of the chief engineers of these companies who were there at the very beginning, uh, and I've, I've shared this in here too, were all disciples of um, B.F. Skinner, really famous psychologist, um, who was really at, at kind of the, the more modern times of how we can use psychology to help people be more engaged in so these guys who have essentially come out and said, we've created a monster and we don't want to be a part of it anymore, have tried to tell the world, hey, you need to get off of these. And they've even, I mean, uh, there's a really great Netflix documentary about it called The Social Dilemma, where they went to their, their bosses first and said, look, we made something too good here. This is going to harm society. We need to create safeguards uh, to prevent people from being so attached to social media. And what did their bosses do? Fire? Fire. <laughs> Kicked them out. And that's on Netflix? The oh, it's called The Social Dilemma. Oh, um, it's so good. Using this psychology to create desire. Mm -hmm. Just pause and reflect <coughs> how 
how much this interplays with your life today and life in general in society. I mean, this is so ubiquitous that it's pretty much the primary medium in which our youth are engaged in life today. Yes. One of the first things they realized when they started creating social media, and this is a Facebook thing, if you can create a like button on a post, and somebody clicks that like, bu like button, it produces a shot of dopamine in the brain. And so then the more likes you get, the more dopamine. But it's a short-lived experience. And so then people go chasing it. And then they want to be engaged more. They want to post more. They want to be locked in their phone more. Yeah. Is the dopamine when you get liked or when you like? When you get liked. When you get liked, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm curious. Yeah. yeah. No, that's a good question. Real question. And so like that, that like button, the, the yeah. idea, the, the, and I mean, this is very well documented. When somebody at Facebook said, hey, what if you add this, this like button, which had never been done before, what if we do this? And, and, and it was kind of controversial, like, well, I don't know. It's like, no, like, look at the psychological research, what if we do this? And they did it, and it just exploded, right? And so now you have every social media outlet, Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, all of them have, like, in some way, some kind of a like button. Next I think it's worth mentioning that um, the social media
got a hotter war on our hands. That's still going on. <coughs> yep. That, that's uh, Russia just like carpet bombed Ukraine, Kiev, Kiev. And now we have what's going on in Gaza, which is another horrendous thing happening with a tremendous amount of loss of life. And our attention spans are focused on that. But I can promise you another sensational thing will happen. And we as a, as a public, we will move on from that as well. Every time a school shooting happens, we move on to it the moment the news shifts. We are just a forgetful society at this point. And because we are a forgetful society, we cannot stay focused long enough in actual areas of justice to do anything remotely sustainably change, uh, that changes any of that. We are just a forgetful society because consumerism creates that which then helps us realize we need to look at gratitude as the route to justice. Not just a good value that our children should have, but gratitude is actually a route of justice for each and every one of us. So dissatisfaction is the route to injustice. Feelings of not having what we need when it's really not having what we want leads to an overfocus on what? It leads to a neglect of social issues, and ultimately it leads to distrust, broken relationships, competition, war, hunger, poverty, gross economic <clears throat> inequality, and wanton destruction of the natural world. And then just because I always think you have to make this argument to people for them to actually really consider it, it ultimately leaves us unhappy too. Being engaged on smartphones, being engaged in a cycle of desire, being told if we just get this next thing, it'll make us happy, actually doesn't make us happy. Right. In fact, it makes us more depressed and anxious. See, There's a book that came out in the 60s called uh, Not Been Capital. And one of the things that it really pro uh, focused on was how marketing began to individualize. You know, you weren't selling to a community, you weren't selling to a family. You began to try to sell to individuals within the family, to the men, to the women, and finally to the children. And you can see that over time. You began, you began to see ads, and more and more ads directed directly at children. And in fact, now in Europe, I think in um, Denmark, a couple of countries, uh, direct advertising to children is actually uh, illegal. Yeah. Uh, Brazil, uh, I think it's Rio de Janeiro, but it's another part of Brazil has gotten rid of, they've made it illegal to advertise on billboards. You can no longer advertise on so Mary Jo Lenny, uh, she's a social activist and theologian. Uh, she's got this quote. The choice to affirm that there is enough for all is the beginning of social community peace and justice. Um, we might look at that as an individualistic uh, benefit for us. If I can feel like I have enough, then maybe my life will be better. However, if we can individualistically look at do I have enough, that actually ends up benefiting all of society. Um, the option to assume that there is enough, that, that well, I'll just push this, this The option to assume that there is enough frees the imagination to think of new political and economic possibilities. What are you looking for? A parent. Do you want to go sit with Laura and Luna? Okay. So think of it this way um, how much of our political and economic possibilities are how much of our economic and political systems currently are more about attaining what
what you don't have than actually creating systems that are geared towards sustainability. So our, our two political parties are constantly fighting for power, right? And a lot of that power is, is funded by lobbyists from corporations who are trying to make sure that their bottom line stays healthy. And often fighting against any kind of tech technologies that would create abundance. Clean energy is not good, right? Uh, fusion technology that's recently come out is going to be bad for business. Um, our economic system, it, our economic system starts with the premise that resources are finite and we need to make sure that we distribute goods in a consistent manner so that one person doesn't hoard all of them. However, our economic system now does the complete opposite of that. So if we just start with the premise, at least as individuals, that I already have enough, that then frees the mind to look at our systems with a, a different goal. Our political system could have a goal of cooperation instead of competition. Our economic system could have the goal of sustainability and abundance instead of finite resources and the bottom line. So that all starts to get freed up just from that simple premise of, I already have enough. Or the world already has enough. So gratitude is the key to recognizing that there is enough for all. Starting every day with the gratitude that I already have an abundance of what satisfies is the biggest thing to help us move through our day and try to avoid that cycle of desire. I've started to practice with our youth group, the ones that bring their cell phones. I make them pull them out and show me what their screen time is. <laughs> Anybody want to guess the, the, the highest number? We're talking about average number of hours per day. 10. Close. What? Nine. 11. Well, I was going to guess that. <laughs> <laughs> the wisdom of Henry. <laughs> I won't say who, but there's a kid who, and, and this was only one week, this kid, uh, it's, it's, it, the average is about eight for this kid, but the worst week it was 11 hours a day. This one was, was thank, during Thanksgiving break. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, but still, 11 hours a day average. <laughs> and it's been fun because we laugh about it, but it's also making the kids more aware of, like, oh, I actually shouldn't be spending this much time on my phone. Well, and that doesn't count their computer time. That doesn't count no. their Netflix time. No, it doesn't. <laughs> TV time. And, 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 and that, yeah. you know, and I can, I can, I can like, shame them, but really that's not sustainable. Towards what? I know. And so what is sustainable is being, um, being grateful for what we already have, right? So at youth group, I have a no, no phone policy. We have two hours where the kids are not allowed to have their phones even on their person. They have to go put them in a certain spot. And what ends up happening is we have two hours of just fun. I mean, we run around the property and play and laugh, and we just have a blast. And guess what? There's an abundance of it. We are not wanting for anything. I am not out there purchasing a ton of expensive supplies or trying to wow them with some crazy new thing. We just go out and play. That's all we do, and it's a blast. And it's abundant, right? So gratitude is the key to recognizing that there is enough for all. Uh, Mary Jo Letty has three quotes that I like. How can we hoard what isn't ours 
comes from the divine universe from nature. We can just stop and be grateful that God, the universe, and that nature provides every single day. And if we did that, maybe we wouldn't go through our day thinking about, I really want dot, dot, dot. How can Americans claim special privilege when God gives so indiscriminately? If we can pause and be grateful that we believe in a God who approaches the Syrophoenician woman, the leper, the Roman, as much as the Pharisee or the follower of Jesus, if we can pause and be grateful for that each and every day, maybe we wouldn't be drawn into an us-versus-them mentality that social media and news is constantly trying to push us into. And if everything is a gift from God, how can we not share those gifts with everyone around us? If the world is genuinely abundant, folks, why would we step into patterns of just sharing with people instead of, I can't do that, I have to hold on to this for myself? I mean, just think of a, 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 a community of just givingness. I mean, if I had uh, an abundance of resources that I, I know I would never run out of, and I mean, honestly, this last one, this is the thing with billionaires in our society today, right? Every billionaire approaches every day with a choice. What could I do with my money? And not one of them is thinking to themselves, what, what world problem could I solve right. with my wealth? So practiced, consistent gratitude can help communities move from dissatisfaction, <coughs> fear, and narcissism to satisfaction, trust, and a deeper appreciation of the connectedness of all things. Gratitude frees us to live in the moment instead of fearing it because we already have what we need and moves us into an awareness of what we have instead of everything we are not. So as I kind of started, gratitude is not just some simple value that we want to instill in our children. Gratitude is not just a good value to walk around life. Gratitude is the source of justice. Gratitude is a daily thing. It's something that each of us has individual power with to approach each day with a justice-centered mind, because it's what reminds us of our abundance. It's what enables us to be in relationship with people, because it helps us start each day saying, I actually have enough of what already satisfies. I don't need to spend energy in this day trying to acquire more for myself. I can utilize energy in just being a present, loving person for my kids, my family, my friends, my community. So you're saying the billionaires, because they know they have enough, you know, they don't have to go. And my, my question, my giggle is, are you saying that we thousandaires could also have that attitude? Not yeah. going to get more, just going, how can I help? Uh, <laughs> or hundredaires even. Richard Rohr tells a story of going to Guatemala with um, a group of other uh, monks, and they go to this very poor town in Guatemala. And he tells a story, he says, sit down and the people of this little town 
not, it, it's not, they're not, it's not like revealed. They just bring out a tray and it's a whole chicken. And that's what Richard Moore says, that's when I realized I didn't hear the clucking anymore. And so he asked the lady, what happened to the chickens I heard when we walked in? And these were all their chickens. And they said, well, we killed them so that we could have this feast together with you. And he said, you guys killed your remaining chickens like for us?